to do the will of him who sent me. That is his food. He came to feed on God's will. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 49th episode of Working with the Word. We continue to walk through John's gospel, seeking to examine the evidence that John provides so that each and every one of us can cultivate and grow in our belief of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Today, we are examining another intimate conversation Jesus has, this time not with a Pharisee, but a Samaritan woman. We have a quick question for you as you're tuning in. Are you thirsty? Well, you may just be by the end of this episode. So grab a cup or a bottle of water as we focus on the living water that Jesus has to offer. Let's start off with a reading of the text we'll be focusing on today. All right, so we're reading John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42, reading from the Christian Standard Bible. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, But you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, 
and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with the woman. Yet no one said, What do you want? Or, Why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say, there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. So similar to what we did at the beginning of our last episode, we want to take a moment to ask some questions, some things that might be helpful for us as we're going through our study and thinking about Some specific questions that could guide us as we're wanting to dig a little bit deeper on the ground level or even dig deeper as we might talk about in that observation and interpretation stage. So let's think about who and where and when and what and why relating to this conversation. I want to begin by thinking about who is involved in this discussion. And we're not really thinking so much about Jesus, but we want to profile here the Samaritan woman as we often refer to her, or as she's described a couple of times in here, it's really highlighted she's from Samaria, and she's a woman. So what's so significant about that? Well, understanding that Samaritans and Jews don't get along. The text told us that for ourselves there in chapter 4 and verse 9. We go back to something like 2 Kings 17, 24 through 41. We see that these Samaritans are some type of Israelites who mingled their culture of worship with Mesopotamian culture and worship after the fall of Israel, that northern kingdom, in 722 B.C. So they're kind of Jews, but they're also not. Uh, Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. There's a quote from the ESV Archaeology Study Bible that says, Later Judeans viewed the Samaritans as having forsaken their Jewish identity. But in contrast, the Samaritans likely believed themselves to be the true Israelites, worshiping at the original temple on Mount Gerizim, which was abandoned by Eli in favor of Shiloh. So we'll talk more about Mount Gerizim here in just a little bit, as it's brought up here in our text. Samaritans possessed their own modified Pentateuch, 
but rejected the rest of the Old Testament in favor of their own histories, and I thought this was interesting. They had their own messianic view as well. I never really thought about that, but here's this woman who, she talks about the Messiah, but the way she's probably thinking the Messiah is very different than how somebody from Judea would think about the Messiah, someone who is a Jew basing it upon the prophets and the Psalms, because she's probably not thinking that based on the prophets of Psalms. And I don't think I can get more into that right now other than what we can see in John chapter 4. So Samaritans and Jews don't get along. But it's also the fact that this is a woman. This is what John records as is truly startling to the disciples in chapter 4 and verse 27. When they arrive back and they see Jesus sitting with this woman at the well, it's not just that, oh, she's a Samaritan, but they're startled and amazed because he's talking to a woman. I mean, nobody questions Jesus about this. Jesus is just kind of doing strange Jesus things in this moment. You know, he's talking to people who you might not expect others to talk to, but it is still shocking that here you have this Samaritan woman. Now, where are they? Surprise, surprise, they're in Samaria, right? (laughs) We're talking about the Samaritan woman. This would be the most direct route if you're traveling from Judea to Galilee. You would cut up through Samaria, this region that's kind of sandwiched between them. However, many strict Jews would feel they had defiled themselves if they passed through the region of Samaria. And so many would opt to cross over the Jordan River in Judea. They would walk parallel to the region of Samaria on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and then they would cross back over the Jordan into Galilee. This would be a much longer route, but that again shows that the tension politically and maybe religiously even between these people. And did you notice in John chapter 4 and verse 4, it says Jesus had to travel through Samaria. This isn't like Jesus is, oh, you know, I'm tired and I don't want to take the longer, I just want to take the short route. The text says Jesus had to. John is pointing us to the fact that this conversation needed to take place. And so we'll talk more about this conversation here in a moment. When does it take place? It takes place about noon, it says in John chapter 4 and verse 6. The idea of it's hot. And what do you do when you're hot and you're traveling? You want to drink a water. It takes place at this well. That's going to lead into more of this conversation in a bit. What are they talking about? What's the main topic of conversation here? Well, they start talking about water, but it quickly shows or it quickly becomes apparent the fact that they're not just talking about H2O and the contents of this well Things are getting to much more of a spiritual matter than a physical matter, a point that we're going to make not just with the water here, but even in Jesus' conversation with his disciples in just a moment. But then the big question of why. Why is this conversation taking place? Jesus had to cross into Samaria, or had to go through Samaria. He had to talk to this woman about the living water. What's this all about? It's Jesus knowing that this woman needs him. And where she comes from, most likely this rocky past, understanding that Jesus still values her and that she needs the Messiah, the Savior, just as much as you and I do as people who are broken as well. So that gives us, again, a profile of this woman. Those are some questions thinking about, as Jesus has some of these conversations, who is he talking to? What's the topic? Are we given where they are, when they are? Understand some of those details around that. Hopefully that flushes some of this out a little bit more. But let's continue to get into this conversation with this woman Really, you could break this down into three sections of chapter 4, 1 through 26, when Jesus has this main chunk with the woman, this main conversation with her. Verses 27 through 38, Jesus has this aside with his disciples. And then 39 through 42, the rest of these people from the city of Samaria come out to Jesus. We won't really break down each of those sections. We won't have like a hard transition, 
But let's just think about this section as a whole, these 42 verses. What's your first observation, Emerson? When I think about just kind of going back to the profile of, of the Samaritan woman, one of the first things that, that jumps out to me is how different she is from the guy we met last week in chapter three. You know, she is like polar opposites from Nicodemus. Nicodemus is, is a big shot within, you know, the Jewish religion. He's very well studied. He's a Pharisee. He's very religious. He's very scrupulous. The Samaritan woman, she's a nobody. I mean, we're not even given her name. She, as, as we're going to see, she's got a very broken past and currently living in adultery, uh, in, in moral relationships. And she doesn't really seem to be really knowledgeable about the Bible like Nicodemus was or should have been. And so it's interesting that Jesus doesn't write her off. And really, when you think about the conversations that Jesus has with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, Jesus really is talking about the same thing to both of them, but he reaches them at different levels. He starts where they are, and, and so it's just interesting how he, two very different people, but yet he doesn't write either of them off. He offers himself to both of them. So that's the first thing that I notice. What about you? I'm seeing more of just how important it is when Jesus knew people. That statement from chapter 2 and verse 24 Jesus would not entrust himself to them since he knew them because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. As he has that conversation then with Nicodemus, as he has that conversation with this woman, and as he has that conversation with his disciples, and you have all these conversations that Jesus is really giving people what they need. And while people maybe are coming with shallow faith or shallow understanding at the time, Jesus, in these conversations, is trying to make people understand or help people, maybe is the better way to phrase it, help people understand what they need to know. While maybe people are focused on physical versus spiritual, he's trying to get them to think in that spiritual side. And I need to think in that same way as well. I need to try to embrace some of the abstractness of some of Jesus' conversations and say, you know what, this is important for me to learn about and to understand and see what you have to say in these moments. Yeah, and looking at Jesus's conversation with the woman, it it seems like it goes everywhere. I mean, they cover so many different topics and so many shifts in conversation. So it's helpful to kind of get an outline of of where this conversation goes. I think we can break it down into four sections. In verses 7 through 15, Jesus offers her living water. And then in verses 16 through 18, when Jesus says to her, go call your husband, it seems that Jesus knows her past. That's kind of the focus there. In verses 19 through 24, the woman shifts the subject to talking about worship. And we see Jesus says basically that he is the true temple. That's not a matter of location anymore, but it's about worshiping through Jesus. And then at the end of the conversation, when she leaves, or what kind of prompts her to leave in verses 25 and 26 we see that Jesus identifies himself explicitly as the Messiah. So let's kind of break those down. The first section, Jesus talks about living water, and he doesn't start off with saying anything about living water. He just asks her for a drink. I mean, he's hot. He's thirsty. It's the middle of the day. And it's interesting that, you know, Jesus, you see his humanity here. He does get thirsty. He gets tired. And so he's sitting on, you know, by the well. He sent his disciples to go and buy food, and she comes out, and his first request is he puts himself, 
you know, in the position of, of the one in need. And the Samaritan is completely shocked by this. Why are you talking to me, right? Apparently, she somehow knew, whether it's his accent or his dress or something, that he was a Jew and that they would not really, you know, under normal circumstances, be talking to each other. Not only did Jesus ask her for a drink, but he asked for a drink from her pitcher. You know, he, he's going to be drinking from a pitcher that is unclean because it's being held by a Samaritan woman. And so when he sees that she's surprised by that in verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him for a drink. What Jesus is saying is, look, I have water that you need. I'm thirsty, but you're even more thirsty than me. What is he offering to her? What is this living water? I think he's offering her eternal life, just like he offered to Nicodemus. You have to be born again or born from above. He's talking about uh, eternal life. And so it's interesting that Jesus uses water as a figure because it's one that we can all understand. I mean, all of us have been in a position where we've been really thirsty. And the only thing that can quench that thirst is a good, tall glass of water or two or three. And so Jesus uses that figure to show how much we need him. And he highlights that there's a big difference between physical water and eternal life. In verse uh, 13 and 14, if you drink from this water in this well, it's going to satisfy you for a little bit, but you're going to have to come out tomorrow to the same spot and drink again. But if you have the living water I can give to you, you'll never get thirsty again. In fact, it's going to become like a geyser. You're going to have so much of it, it's going to satisfy you eternally. It's going to, you know, just gush out like a well springing up to eternal life. And so Jesus offers what she needs, the living water. And it's interesting that as soon as he starts to talk about this, she's obviously interested, right? If you hear somebody talking about an unlimited supply of water that you would never get thirsty again, you would think, wow, what grocery store? Where, where is the? Where do I need to go to buy this or to obtain this water that I would never have to get thirsty or drink again? She starts asking all these questions of, where is this? How did you get it? How will I get it? Are you greater than Jacob, the guy who gave us this well? While she may have rejected some of the latter parts of the Old Testament, she would know who Jacob is, and she you know, makes a testament to her father Jacob. And it's amazing that as she starts to get into this part of the conversation, Jesus as we've seen a number of times, totally shifts. Hey, where do I get this water? And then he just goes, hey, call your husband here. <laughs> what? And that kind of brings into that next section of, she's like, well, that's kind of a, a weird transition, but he's pointing out the fact that she needs this living water. And so she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, you're right, which is probably already making her, well, why did you ask in the first place then? And then he talks about, her past. You've had five husbands, and the person you have right now isn't your husband. Now, whether that's because of her immorality that she keeps moving around from marriage to marriage, whether that's her broken past because of the way others have treated her, which would be just as terrible, and then to find herself in the situation she's in now still outside of what the law would say or in an in a immoral relationship, Jesus is not bringing up that point to say, you wicked sinner, and then immediately calls down hellfire on her. But rather, I think some points that we have in our notes here is just that idea of it's not really that much of a, a crazy jump from him talking about the living water to her situation where she needs that living water. 
And so it's just amazing to see that fact that she needs Jesus in the situation she's in right now and understanding the context of this relationship. But that's not where the conversation is going to stay. It needs to move forward beyond just her moment to, well, what do you need in the future? Yeah, she knows that she is physically thirsty because that's why she has come out here to draw water. But she needs to realize that she has a greater thirst, and that is what Jesus can quench. Mm -hmm. And just really quickly, to go back to talking about water, you mentioned like an endless supply of water. And as you were talking about that, it dawned on me that, you know, here in America, we kind of have that. I mean, we take for granted the fact that you can turn on our, we can turn on our faucets and we just have this, this water. Now, some of you in Texas have experienced what it's like to not have that. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, that's something we just take for granted. So this woman, I mean, and everybody who lived back in these days, they didn't have indoor plumbing. So they had to intentionally go out and carry their water from a well yeah. and bring it back. So I think it's hard for us to really relate to what Jesus is talking about here. This idea of having to work to just bring the essentials of life to your home. But that's kind of what Jesus is is hitting at. And yeah. and so, yeah, again, she needs to see her real thirst is for Jesus. And by the way, that's that's all of our thirst too. Jesus is essential for eternal life. Without him, we can't have that. Mm -hmm. And and so here's another shift in verse 19 when Jesus makes it clear that he knows her past, he knows her very intimately, you know, very personally. Verse 19, she says, I see that you're a prophet. Well, that, that's a pretty good deduction, I would say. I mean, she she's clever enough to, to reach that conclusion. He knows something about me, so, so there must be something to this man. But then she shifts topic to verse 20, talking about worship. And I don't know why she changes the, the subject. I don't know if it's because she just kind of wants to get Jesus off her back, want to talk about a less personal subject, mm -hmm. or if it's just kind of as natural conversations go, you know, you just kind of say what comes to mind. And whether it's a logical jump or not, it's it's what you think about. So when she sees that this man is a prophet, maybe she thinks to herself, oh, I'm going to ask him a question. And this is a really loaded question that she asks. There's a lot of tense religious and political history in the background. Kind of what you were talking about earlier with the Samaritans and their origin. A little bit of geography here. The city where they are, the village is right next to Gerizim. Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritan temple used to be, is visible from the well. And so it's a very relevant discussion to have. You mentioned that, that they used to worship at Mount Gerizim. The, the Samaritan temple was built on Mount Gerizim in the days of Nehemiah by one of Nehemiah's greatest enemies, Sanballat. And if you know the book of Nehemiah, you can see kind of the, the tension there. Not only that, but the Samaritan temple was destroyed in between the Old Testament and New Testament times. It was destroyed by the Jewish high priest to force the Samaritans into Judaism. And so, like I said, this is a really, it's a hot topic in this day. And so, is she trying to get Jesus into hot water here? What's your opinion here? But what Jesus says in response is, woman... And by the way, that's not a demeaning way or insult or anything. It's just a, a way to refer to, to, to someone, an address. He says, essentially, there's going to be a day when it doesn't matter what physical temple you worship in. What matters in is that you worship in spirit and in truth. 
you and I, when we were talking about this episode and this passage, we were talking about how sometimes this phrase, worshiping in spirit and in truth, is sometimes used to talk about two aspects of worship, that we worship with the right attitude, that's the spirit part, and that we worship in truth with the right doctrine. That's a true point. I mean, we see scriptures in the Old Testament and New Testament that we must worship with the right heart in the right way. We see that that's a true point. But I think Jesus's point is greater than that. He's not necessarily talking about the mode of worship here. Really, he's just highlighting that in order to worship truly, we have to worship through Jesus. Because as we've seen you know, earlier in chapter 2, when Jesus is in the temple and he tells the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, he's talking about himself. So it's not about the temple in Jerusalem anymore. And it's not about the Samaritan's temple on Gerizim. It's about who is the temple. It's Jesus. We worship through him. And so the true worshipers here are those who recognize Jesus as the Son and that he is the true temple. So to worship the Father, Jesus is our access point. So that's what he's trying to get her to see is that he is the true temple and that if she's going to worship the Father at all, she's going to have to go through him. That can be a good reminder for us about the fact that church buildings and church houses, whatever you want to call them, have a purpose. It's you know very obviously convenient for everyone to come to the same place to worship, but it's not about, I have to be in this physical location if I am going to worship or not. And in fact, when we're talking about worship, we always want to remind ourselves we're not just limited to worship only on Sunday for an hour to three hours and, you know, maybe a midweek worship on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday of some kind as well. Worship is broader than that. That's maybe more than we want to get to in this moment. But the point can be made today as well. It's not about, you know, this church building or that church building. It's about who it is we're worshiping and we're worshiping through him. We're worshiping God through Jesus. And you have in our notes, chapter 2, verse 19, as Jesus talks about himself as the temple. That's the main point in here, that Jesus really is that true temple. And I wonder if that's really the response she was looking for, because (laughs) she gets kind of testy with Jesus here. And she talks about in verse 25 of, hey, I know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us everything we need to know about worship and where worship will or won't happen. Supposedly, again, they had some understanding about the Messiah and who the Messiah was. And Jesus really lays it down on her as she seems to really be pushing against him. He's going to push back and really make this big revelation of, I'm the Messiah that you're looking for. I mean, you can just imagine the emotions that she's going through. I think maybe about the facial expressions of kind of the eyebrows are furrowed as she's frustrated with him and maybe some of that response that he just gave. And then as he tells her that, just kind of the relaxing slash mouth opening moment of he of he making that point and so to, to jump ahead a little bit into this conversation he's gonna have with the disciples she does have some moments there in verse 28 through verse 30 she's gonna leave that water jar based on that thing that jesus says that's such a big moment for her that forget water i've got to go back to town and i've got to get folks so they can hear this as well come and listen to this guy could this be the Messiah. He told me everything I could ever know, and so people are going to come to him as well. But before we get to Jesus' conversation or Jesus' interaction with the rest of the Samaritans, we have this conversation with his disciples where there's a little bit more confusion between physical versus spiritual. 
Yeah, so the disciples come back, and remember they went, went to the town to buy food. And, you know, they're surprised that Jesus is talking with this woman. And in verse 31, the disciples are urging him, eat, okay? You know, remember Jesus is tired, he's hungry, he's thirsty. So he's got to eat something. And he refuses. In, in verse 32, he says, I've got food to eat that you don't know about. And they're like, well, you, you got a loaf of bread tucked under your robe there, Jesus? You know, did, did somebody else sneak him something that we don't know about? Did anybody bring something else? And I think you see, you know, some comparison with the Samaritan woman. When Jesus started talking about living water, she thought about, you know, the H2O that was in that well. When Jesus starts talking to his disciples about food, they were thinking about bread. They were thinking about fish or whatever they brought from town. And Jesus is not talking about that. In this whole chapter, Jesus is not talking about physical water. He's not talking about physical bread. He's talking about something bigger than that. And, and so we need to understand that as well. To do the will of him who sent me, that is his food. He came to feed on God's will mm -hmm. and the work that God had sent him to do. And there, this is a little bit of a tough text in verses 35 to 38 when Jesus talks about the harvest is coming and I'm sending you to, to reap for, for that which others have worked for already. Uh, what is Jesus talking about? Without diving too deep into it, Jesus is using this farming illustration to convey his purpose as the Messiah and their purpose as his followers. I think he's talking about how he has kind of planted a seed with this Samaritan woman, and she's gone back into town, and she's planting those seeds even further. And they're coming out, as we're going to see in the text later on, they're, they're coming out to meet him. And all the disciples can think of is, we've got to eat something here. <laughs> it's true that they needed to eat something. Jesus is not saying, just ignore your hunger. He's talking about priorities, and he's talking about not being distracted. There's more important things here than to eat. And so here's a lesson for us you know, what, what are we focused on? Is, is our focus on the thing that Jesus was focused on? In verse 34 again, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I'm not sure that I can always say that for myself, mm -hmm. that, that that's my food, but that was Jesus's focus. And Jesus wants his disciples to see that that, that should be their focus as well. So I think he's kind of preparing them for the work that they're going to continue once he has left. Yeah, and you just have to think about what's going through the disciples' mindset. You know, were they some of those people who, if they were leading the the journey, would they have chosen to cross over the Jordan and take the longer route rather than going through Samaria? But here Jesus is leading them through Samaria. But something could be said at least for their faith or for their following of him that they'll say, all right, we'll go with you. They see Jesus talking to this woman, this Samaritan woman, and there's confusion, but they continue to not overthrow or to get in the way of Jesus, again, doing his work. They're going to stay in Samaria for two days, it talks about later on. All these things about what's going on in their minds, we're not really given much information, but something that I never really thought about before is the fact that some of these men are going to come back to Samaria. Think about Acts chapter 8 and verse 4 through verse 17. Peter and John are going to return to Samaria to lay hands on these people after Philip has started to evangelize and tell them the good news, and people are believing and being baptized and starting their new lives as Christians. These men are going to come to Samaria now with 
all of those same questions or maybe even a sense of disgust that we might imply into their thoughts about the Samaritans, but they're there to do that reaping that Jesus could be talking about here as well. It's just amazing to see how that story continues even through the rest of the Gospels and into Acts. Yeah, and one of the things is just shocking in this story is how socially risky and even you know politically risky it would have been for Jesus to even stay in that town for two days. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, like you're saying, the disciples certainly would have learned something from that. Hey, that these Samaritans are kind of our enemies, but they need the gospel too. So yeah, it's just Jesus kind of, you know, from a political perspective, he kind of shoots himself in the foot here. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what he came to. He didn't come to lead some revolution. He came to bring living water, eternal life to people that are thirsty. Right. Just like you said, that big point of my food is to do my father's will, not the culture's will, not political will, but my father's will. So while he's in that Samaritan town, these people come to Jesus after the woman comes and she says, you know, could this be the Christ? You know, he's known all of this about me. They come, first of all, because of this woman's testimony. However, after spending that time with him, they come to believe in Jesus themselves. And really in these last few verses, verse 42 is a very powerful statement. Just as much as the powerful statement of Jesus there in verse 26, and just as the powerful statement in verse 29 of this woman, could this be the Messiah? In verse 42, the people say, we no longer believe because of what you said, speaking to the Samaritan woman, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of of the world. They know not because of somebody else's testimony, but because they have done the searching, looking at the evidence themselves. They can make that conclusion. And I think that's really the big so what of all of this, right? Yeah. Kind of takes us back to chapter one when we saw Jesus with his first disciples. And remember what they said? Come and see. And that's what Jesus told them, and that's what a couple of the disciples told one another. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip said, well, just come and see. That's what this woman says in verse 29, come and see. And so in, I think the so what of this is that we need to investigate and cultivate our own faith as well. That's why we're being told this story, not just so we can be interested in seeing the growth of their faith, but so that we will follow in that same a path. And one of the interesting things about this story as a whole with the woman is seeing her progression of faith. In one conversation, she comes to see that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the Messiah. In the beginning of the conversation, she just knows him as a Jewish man that's talking to her, kind of weirded out by it. Why are you talking to me? He's no different than anybody else. And then she kind of implies, are you saying that you're greater than Jacob? I don't think she takes that seriously yet, but she at least sees that what Jesus is talking about makes some claim to greatness. And then she comes to see that Jesus, yeah, he's a prophet. He knows about my life. And so there's more to him than maybe meets the eye at first. And then she goes back into the town, leaving her water pot and saying, could this be the Messiah? That progression of faith happens in one single conversation. And that's that's the progression that we need to take as well. We need to come to see Jesus is not just a Jewish man. He's not just greater than Jacob. He's not just a prophet. He is the Messiah. And as the Samaritan said, he's the savior of the world. So 
we need to investigate that claim and come to see that for ourselves. So our challenge this week is not just to ponder what you learn about Jesus from chapter 4, but we would encourage you to write down what you for yourself have seen about Jesus from John chapter 4 that helps you believe that he is the Messiah. Again, as that's John's main point, as talked about in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, just as a regular point we're seeing over and over again in these conversations. It's not just about what does this woman believe? What did Nicodemus believe? What did Philip and Nathaniel believe? It's about what does Jeff believe about that? What does Emerson believe for himself? What do you as a listener believe about as well? So we encourage you to write that down, to express that in a way that helps you grow in your faith and your understanding of Jesus being the Son of God. Thank you for listening today. Next time, we're going to finish up John chapter 4 with a quick look at Jesus' second sign at Cana of Galilee. It's one of the stories in John that can be easy to overlook. If you like what you're hearing today, you can help us out by leaving us a rate or review and by sharing it with someone else. As always, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.